welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! If you would, turn to uh, Psalm 121 or scroll to Psalm 121. Uh, Psalm 121, a song of ascent. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me go ahead and open us in prayer. O God, whose mighty power and raised Jesus from the dead, breaking the grip of death and dissolving the terror of the grave, scatter the darkness out of our minds, free us from all fear, and lead us to comfort of your promise that one day we too shall dwell with Christ in the brightness of your glory. Illumine our hearts that we may hear and receive the good news of the reign of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this psalm, Psalm 121, it doesn't have a specific author, but it's part of the psalms that are known as the Songs of Ascent. So Psalm, Psalms 120 through 134, these 15 psalms were psalms which were sung, I would say they're probably some of the first hymns that Israelites would sing as they traveled to Jerusalem for three major feasts. So Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of the Booths, uh, they would travel to Jerusalem and they would sing these with, with them. But see, this psalm specifically looks at the worries and anxieties as the Israelites journeyed to Jerusalem for the different feast. See, this was not your typical road trip that you think of today, right? It's not like we just hop in the car You get on the turnpike, and you go down to the shore, all right? But what it was, for many of them, it was a very treacherous and 90-mile hike. They would have to walk through scorching hot weather, not able to protect themselves from the sun. Along with that, they would have to carry their belongings with them. The feasts were not just a one-day thing, all right? So it was over uh, a week, usually, or many days, And they'd have to carry everything that they needed. And see, Jerusalem was on top of a mountain. And if you came from the side where the Dead Sea was, in a very short distance, you would have to travel, or I should say climb, about a 5,000-foot elevation difference. And then once they were on the mountain, the pathway to walk was so small, you would have to uh, walk one by one so you wouldn't fall down. Okay? 
Uh, and there's pictures of it. You can look this up online of how they would have to do it. And see, this area was full of caves. So maybe recently you read about uh, them finding another Dead Sea. That's kind of where this area is. All right. And there would be thieves and bandits hiding in these caves because they knew every year when these people would have to come and they would c try to, uh, I should say, hunt them down and steal stuff because it was very lucrative for them. On top of that, they had to find food, water, and protect themselves from wild animals. So you see, on this journey to the different feasts, the Israelites had all the worries and anxieties they, they never wanted. But the psalmist called them to look past these current anxieties and to focus on the one who created the heavens and the earth and who keeps their soul. And see, the psalmist or the scripture calls us to these same things. As we go through the journey of our Christian walks, from the moment you accept Christ to our resurrection, the Lord is the one who keeps us. Six times in this psalm, we see that the Lord is our keeper, or the one who keeps us. This means that the Lord, if you read it in the Hebrew, I'm trying not to uh, bore you too much with my seminarian teaching or learning. Uh, this is more of a personal guardian or protector. The word is very intimate. And I want to make clear, when God is our personal guardian, it does, not make, it does not mean he's going to keep us safe from everything. See, walking faithfully in Christ is incredibly difficult. Instead, what it means is God will protect our faith and our love in him, and we can never be separated from him as we walk through the valley of death. When we realize that God is our keeper and our helper, we experience a full and secure faith. See, oftentimes we feel incredibly lonely, worried, and anxious. And see, that's only increased over the past year. We feel God is not present in our current situation, our current worries, our current anxieties. We are easily, as Paul writes, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. As the writer looks at the hills of the mountains, he looks towards God as his helper. Sometimes, though, as we look at the hills, we begin not to focus on the God who created them, but the physical hardship, the emotional turmoil, and the idols that are there. And see, there's three things that we go through that we lose our focus and we feel less secure in our faith when it comes to our worries and our anxieties. And see, these are our desires, our expectations, and control. And see, uh, to draw out these three points, I'm going to, um, maybe in the past few weeks, you have seen the new Netflix documentary. It's called Operation Varsity Blues, the college emission scandal. And the FBI actually called it after the movie, so it's called Operation Varsity Blues. And so this documentary looks at the 2019 college emissions bribery scandal, which involved some of the top universities, some of the most wealthiest Americans. And William Singer was the one, was the man who was in charge of the operation. And he would take millions of dollars that some of these people had given him, and he would pay someone to either cheat on the SAT or SA, ACT scores to improve their scores, or he would, and he would bribe college admissions personnel and athletic coaches to get their children into the likes of Stanford, Yale, and Georgetown. And you might remember it uh, because actresses Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman were part of this and actually went to jail for it. 
And several CEOs of Fortune 500 companies were charged and found guilty too. And see, the way the director finishes this documentary is he asks the question of why do people who are so privileged and have so much in life feel the need to cheat when they already have so much? And see, I would ask a different question. <laughs> I would ask, what did they want? And what did they feel like they needed? And see, what these parents ultimately wanted was the best for their children. I can imagine, you know, I have a six-month-old right now, and I want the best for her. I always joke with my wife that uh, she's going to become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court because I think it's great uh, job security. And see, each of us want the same thing for our kids, and our parents wanted the same thing for, our, for us, right? It was part of the American dream. It was part of the thing of, like, you wanted to get into the best school, right? It was never a question if you were going to college. It was a question of where you were going to college. Or you want to get the best job, and you want to live the best possible life, right? And they let these desires of a good thing. And let me say this. Going to a good college, getting a good job, having a good life is a good thing. And it is a blessing. But they let it become an ultimate thing. As James says in chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. When we let our desires become the ultimate things, we covet, we hate, we fight, and we cannot serve our neighbors. Think about the times you wanted something so incredibly bad. You would almost do anything to get that desire. And see, the parents of the college bribery scandal, they also had unrealistic expectations, right? They expected their kids to get into the best schools. But see, they didn't have what you needed to do it, right? They didn't have the SAT score they needed. <coughs> Some of them didn't have the extracurricular activities or the grades to do so. And see, when we let our expectations go too high or not on the right track, they cause this worry and anxiety in our fear. And see, I think we have this type of thing coming to the church, right? We expect to have this perfect community and fellowship in the church. And see, when these expectations are not met, we point the plank at, in the other's eye, or we just leave our church for another church. In both instances, we become bitter and resent the church. But see, the problem is the church is full of people who will always let you down. But it is full of people who are saved by, the, by God's grace. And we also have unrealistic expectations in our personal walk with Christ. Um, see, and I'm specifically pointing this out in youth ministry. Not to say anything bad against youth ministry. Um, I came to Christ through the organization called Young Life. I met my wife because of it. <coughs> All right, so again. But I think there are some things in various youth ministries where we use the bait and switch, right? We make things fun, extravagant, and perfect as possible. And most of the time, this translates to the Christian walk, right? We expect this adventure, this great thing to happen. But see, following Christ sometimes is the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's hard. It's boring. You 
You know, like, it's not easy apologizing to your spouse or to someone and admitting you're wrong. And see, what Christ does is he calls us to die, on our, die to ourselves and pick up our cross. In Luke 14, he says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? See, Jesus is making sure and letting us know. He never says, like, he never tricks Paul, or sorry, Peter and John, when he calls them out of the fishing boat to be like, hey, come on this cool water slide with me first. All right? He comes and he calls them to come and die. And see, the parents in Operation Varsity Blues, they also had lost control of the situation. They tried to do what they could to fix the problem. See, they bribed people to be able to do it. And say, today with a watch, a calendar, <coughs> and a minute-by-minute -minute schedule of activities synced to our phones, we live under the dual illusion of controlled individuality. See, we govern the output, and few outside influences can stop us. It now seems possible to depend on pretty much nobody or anybody, and we don't need anybody, or to be vulnerable. We've taken complete control of our destinies. We, when we cannot control what we love or what we want, fears and anxieties creep in because we might lose them. Think about the time of your day when you're running late, right? You're in traffic. Growing up in the Midwest, I've had to uh, come and understand tra more traffic here because I'm not used to it. But see, you get ticked off and you yell at the driver. And maybe you give a hand signal you probably shouldn't give to them. And we lose control. We do all we can to gain it back. See, the problem is we let our desires take control of our actions. We hold people to higher expectations than we ourselves could ever meet. And we try to control everything and everyone in our lives. See, we can never meet these desires and expectations. And as much as you, too, want to control stuff in your life, you're never able to. See, our anxieties, worries, and fears overtake us, and our faith wavers. And at this time, we feel alone. We ask the question, where is God? Our faith does not feel secure because we are incapable of securing our own faith. When we look at the question from where, we look at too many places, but never the right place. See, as we read this psalm and the rest of scripture, we learn God promises never to leave us, and nothing can separate us from him. To have a full and secure faith, we must remember it is nothing that we have never, ever done. It is never our internal or our external circumstances God never promises to take away our ne negative circumstances or suffering, but to be ever-present with us as we go through them. See, this is the beautiful part of the cross. On the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on that cross and he drank the cup of wrath, something was torn between God the Father and God the Son's relationship. 
I want to say this. There's a lot of mystery to that. And people debate over it. But see, Christ was forsaken by God the Father. The most deep and intimate relationship was somewhat separated. What does this mean for us that Christ was forsaken? See, he suffered social abandonment, emotional desertion, and spiritual separation from the Father. Here's what we must remember and treasure because of it. Jesus willingly suffers this so sinners may escape it. Jesus' abandonment means sinners' adoption. He takes our place on the cross so that we can take his place in the kingdom. Because he was abandoned socially, we may be children in the household of God. Because he was deserted emotionally, we become whole again, renewed in the image of God. Because he suffered spiritual separation, we may be spiritually united to him through faith so that we never may be separated by God's love. Because he was forsaken, we are forgiven. Now he says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as Paul the Apostle writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? As it is written, for, you, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And see, we learn God is the keeper, the protector, and the guardian of our faith, that nothing is able to separate us from him. Psalm 121 gives us three reasons why we can have confidence in God for a deeply secure faith. One, he is our creator. Two, he is always present. And three, he is deeply intimate with us. As the pilgrim is on his journey, he looks towards the hills. He feels his anxiety and worries, and he knows the challenges that are coming. And see, the pilgrim remembers who made the hills, Yahweh. And see, Yahweh is used here, and if you know anything about this word, it's a deep, intimate word for God. And if you know anything about the book of Job, what is it that God responds back with Job? He doesn't tell him why. But he gives intimate details about his creation and his providence. And see, as creator, God is the best and only person able to care for our faith since he created it. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into your barns, and yet heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they, in which you you, be, being anxious, can add a single hour to his life, span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Right? 
See, God knows and he cares for everything, but he cares deeply for us. And he's the only person capable of doing it because he created us. And see, throughout the psalm, God is always present and he is the protector of our faith. See, if you, <clears throat> if you didn't know, in the ancient Near East and in the Greek and Roman gods, all of them slept just like humans did. Many stories, if you read like Homer's Odyssey, um, you, re- you can depict these stories that gods need to be woken up. So that's why they sacrificed things outside of the Jewish faith, was to wake up these gods. But see, if you read this psalm, it says, instead, our God is one who's never asleep and never caught slumbering. He works while we are at rest. This part of the psalm has struck me the most probably in the past few months because, so we had to, in seminary, we had to learn to sing it in Hebrew. And I've, to practice singing it, I would sing it to my daughter as I rocked her to sleep. And it just struck me how every time I didn't need to worry as I put her down or as I lay my head to rest, because I know I have a God who is always awake and who is always attending to us, whether it's I'm asleep or awake. And see, we also see when it says, the sun shall not strike you by day or moon by night. See, we see and we have a God who is always there, whether it's daytime or it's nighttime. And it's also stated that our Lord is our keeper in our coming and going. That means he's not at one place. Again, if you think about religions or other religions, or even sometimes the Jewish faith, People thought you had to go to the temple to be able to fully worship him. But see, we do not. And he's with us always, whether we go out of our house or we come back here. Here, no matter whether we are in our house or outside, the Lord is with us. He watches over us always. And see, the psalm ends with this time forth and forevermore. See, that is that God is forever with us. In the Gospel of Matthew, we get the best picture of this. See, if you read in the beginning of, God, of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it ends, right, when Jesus is ascending. See, he says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, it's powerful. The book of Matthew, it begins with God is with us, and it ends with God is with us. And we can have confidence while we may think he is not there. He was, is, and always will be with us. And see, something which has also seeped into the American Christian conscious, and I would say even uh, maybe faith seekers or maybe people who think of a God who is far away, is one where God created everything, but he's distanced from us. And also, if you're skeptical of the Christian faith, maybe you have this view too. In the midst of our anxiety and fear, and what we see in the news, is how is it possible to have an intimate and personal God? See, God seems more callous to us, and even when we read the different testaments of the old and the new, we feel like we get a different God, right? When we read the new, we get this picture of Jesus with his long hair and beard, and he's holding a, petting a lamb, and then the Old Testament, we get this picture of a God who, <clears throat> who is mean and angry and vengeful and just does anything to clear the way for the Israelites. 
But see, in Scripture, we get a picture of both. In both Testaments, I should say, of the one God. See, he's both just and he is both kind. And see, we know this because, again, as I said earlier, Yahweh is used. See, this is a deep, intimate name. Second, the whole, the words helper and keeper used in this text have a deeper, more intimate meaning than we can give in the English translations. It is a God who is personal and intimate with us. Throughout the Psalms, God is referred to as our shade. See, to be someone's shade, you have to be close to them. You can't be far off in the distance. See, God promises to be our shade as we walk in times when our world is out of control. As I have said, God is our source of our confidence and is the reason why we have a secure faith. There will be times when our anxiety and fears will overwhelm us. There are a few things we can do to remember. The first is we should ask, where are we focusing on? As the author of the psalm is looking up at the many fears and worries that are to come, he looks past the hills and remembers who made them. And see, the question I ask is, from where are you focusing? As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, So we do not lose heart, through our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are transient, but the things are unseen, are eternal. See, we as Christians should be marked by what we put our focus on. Our doubts, our worries are put away when we focus on eternity. They're not gone. They just seem less important. We should have an eternal perspective. We should ask, will I care about this in 10 years? Or will I even care about it in 10,000 years? As we focus on God and the things unseen, the momentary afflictions, become times when we look back on how God used it to grow us. And as C.S. Lewis writes, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective, ineffective in this. See, if you look at the apostles and their writings and the people who became martyrs or the people who have given the most to the church, they are always focused on what we cannot see. When you are putting your focus on the Lord, your mind turns from looking inward to looking outward. And in a men's Bible study I'm in on the main line, we're reading uh, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was executed by the Nazis because of his faith uh, and because of him working to build a church that was opposite of Nazism. And um, also, he was part of the plot to assassinate Hitler. And when, <clears throat> in the beginning, they read this story of a British officer who was in this concentration camp with him. And he said, I've never seen anyone feel like the presence of God was right with him experienced anything who a man who had the presence of God exactly with him. And see, think about, <clears throat> all right, like in our Liberty Network, think about Vito. When you work with Vito, when you do stuff with Vito, his mind is always set on eternal things. 
And see, that is true for us. When we keep And the final thing is, are you taking your anxieties to the Lord? See, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are lay, who all, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then Paul reiterates this same in supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, or too big that God who created the mountains or the hills cannot do. And finally, as Hebrews 14 or 415 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the great joy and great peace that you offer and that you will take our burdens. We pray that you would take any anxieties or worries that we have right now to give us peace and joy. Pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.